0: You are listening to the Court Leaders Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals, brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. As the coronavirus crisis stretches out from days to weeks and possibly to months. Courts are increasingly looking at technology to help maintain operations. Before the crisis, virtual hearings were a minor part of the court operations landscape. Now they're being aggressively explored as one solution to help keep courts up and running. How effective are they? What are the benefits and drawbacks? What do we need to watch out for? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series with our focus on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have joining us Zanelle Brown, Court Administrator in Detroit, Michigan. Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer in San Diego, California. Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator in Daytona Beach, Florida. Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in Eugene, Oregon. And Rick Pierce, with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Court. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Let me start by asking each of you, is your court now using virtual hearings? If so, what types of hearings have gone virtual? About how many virtual hearings does your court hold a week, and does your court use a vendor-sponsored system like Skype or Zoom? Rick, what are the Pennsylvania
1: courts using? We are holding preliminary hearings and preliminary arraignments via video. We also convene emergency protection hearings and some juvenile placement hearings via video as well. The number varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction across the Commonwealth, the small courts, the rural courts, obviously have very few. But our largest jurisdictions, Philadelphia and Allegheny County, which is, includes the city of Pittsburgh, hold up to many as a hundred or more per week. We use several platforms and vendors, including Zoom, but we use other vendors as well Folks like Court Call, Jabs, and Court Smart. Zanel, how
0: about your court in Detroit?
2: Well, we're doing the video on um, virtual hearings. We're using the Zoom platform, and we're using them in the criminal area. That's where we first got started with them. We're using it for the arraignment on the information, probation violations, bond mm-hmm. motions, and also for sentencing. Then we moved over to juvenile court where we were using them for emergency placement orders, whether it was delinquency or with abuse and neglect. And we're still working out some kinks so we can get some things going in civil and also domestic relations. So probably this week, we'll probably expand more into those other areas that we haven't tapped in yet.
0: Can you share what sort of kinks you've run into and what you've done to resolve them?
2: (laughs) Probably the biggest kink is the unfamiliarity with the actual Zoom tools and how to actually host and the controls that the host have to use. So going through that with the judges and setting up a place for them to actually record and then send the recording to so it's available for court reporters. That's probably our biggest pieces there. So we have like 58 judges and we're trying to work down with the uniform protocol. So by the end of the week, we plan on having that and rolling that out.
0: Mike, what does your court in San Diego use?
3: Well, we started last week using uh, Microsoft Team, which is the platform that's used by a lot of our justice partners. So we have kind of hooked into that. We are starting with some miscellaneous criminal proceedings to try and get people stipulated and released out of detention with the goal of moving toward preliminary examinations starting next week and then arraignments thereafter. We also use them in juvenile dependency. We use telephonic a system for juvenile dependency and delinquency uh, detention arraignment hearings. And we're looking at expanding into probate and family. It's actually worked quite well. We've started off very slowly. And much like the concentric circles in Iraq and the water, we're expanding it as we go so we can train additional judges and staff.
0: Liz, how about your court in Eugene, Oregon?
4: We Interesting listening to everybody, because um, in terms of what's being held via video, we're pretty much doing the same thing as other courts around the country are doing, apparently. We are having all of the criminal proceedings via video and juvenile proceedings that need to be held via video are held that way. And then we are also moving towards other types of hearings, but we're starting with the required criminal and juvenile hearing types. We used Skype, Microsoft Teams, Webex, and GoToMeeting in no particular order. Those are the tools that are made available to us from our technology division in Salem and that we are using. And we probably are conducting via video anyway, approximately 40 to 50 proceedings a week here in Eugene, and then lots more via teleconference that are not video yet.
0: Mark, what's your court in Daytona Beach using? Well, like most of the
5: others have mentioned, uh, throughout the four-county jurisdiction that I work in, we're doing it primarily for criminal proceedings, first appearances, bond hearings. Starting to do it some with juvenile detention hearings, juvenile shelter hearings, expanding it into some of the family-related matters injunctions for protection and children v- vulnerability issues and that sort of thing. Um, but, but we're starting to see it used more and more for other types of proceedings it really boils down to the comfort level of the judges hearing those kinds of cases as to how we move forward we're using the zoom
0: platform right now when you're negotiating with a vendor have you run into any contract concerns in other words this would be a great time to share with your fellow court administrators any specific provisions that a vendor contract should have
1: rick Well, we have, since we have a decentralized state, each individual district court will do their own uh, negotiations with a contract vendor. But I will tell you that there are some questions that I would recommend each court consider asking their vendor. And that's to start off with how secure is your proceeding? How is the data shared? Uh, How secure is your record? Uh, How accessible is the record? Uh, And we certainly have concerns. Uh, regarding many of these platforms. And I think more the more services and support a, per vendor, a vendor provides, the higher the cost. Mike? We
3: uh, essentially have, been, as I said earlier, been using Microsoft Team. We use a little bit of Skype, not for, directly from the vendor, but just available commercially. And we haven't ha- had to enter into any contracts or agreements. This was pre-existing and as it was being used by the, uh, the sheriff and the district attorney and public defender, we simply hooked into that product and have moved forward without any uh, special arrangements.
0: Have you had any concerns over security since you started more extensively using virtual hearings?
3: Not yet. I think at this point, we haven't gotten into confidential proceedings. Basically, they've all been public proceedings per se. And so, no, those those concerns haven't arisen yet. I suspect as we move more into... Maybe certain family or confidential hearings, you may see that, but so far, no.
0: Sunil, how about in Detroit?
2: Well, our court for the judges, the Zoom contract was negotiated at the state level. We had to negotiate a contract when it came down for, like, the referees and the administrative people who needed to use it. And, of course, our general counsel took a look at the confidentiality pieces and the security pieces like that, and he finally gave a sign-off to it. So there was discussion, but I don't think there was anything that held us up. And we were trying to move pretty quickly, and we did that.
0: Liz, last week you said that in-custody sentencings were difficult to conduct via teleconferencing. What makes them so difficult to convert?
4: Actually, we did not want to conduct them via teleconferencing. Our judges felt strongly that they should be visible to the defendant. And there was a strong uh, need by the defense and the defense attorney and the judges and all of those folks to achieve social distancing. So while we have a jail courtroom, a courtroom in our jail where people can go to, everyone felt like it was important to initiate a video conferencing solution for sentencing. And what I was referring to last week for that is that it was challenging to figure out a way in the video conferencing systems to have a client attorney sidebar when they're not in the same room. So um the DA's office helped us out last weekend, and we did some testing with go-to-meeting licenses that they had, and they found a way with that particular one to do a sidebar and to send folks into sort of an out room where they could talk privately and others can't hear them. And then they can come back into the meeting and join into the um, with everyone else again. And we also found a similar solution um, with OJD's solution, which is WebEx. So just looking for ways to do a video proceeding without having anyone in the same room and at the same time needing to be able to speak privately to another person was the big challenge.
0: So the ability to have private sidebar discussions is built into the software of both platforms?
4: Yes, both of those softwares that that I know of so far can do that. We haven't had a chance yet to explore whether Teams has a solution for that. It may. We're just working so hard to get up to speed on all these different softwares and what does which thing best, that it's been sort of a huge learning curve and just trying to get things implemented. We were really grateful to our DA's office for taking the lead and figuring out how to do that in meeting as our county uh, had purchased a license for Go Meeting, And of course, we're state courts, so they're hosting for now.
0: Mark, I remember you said that your court was struggling with bandwidth issues. Is that still a problem? And what have you been able to do to solve it?
5: Well, it is still an issue that we're uh, struggling with. We have purchased additional bandwidth, but getting it installed is the the issue we're facing now. Thus far, because of the uh, usage of the video platforms, we've been able to accommodate it so far. But uh, the expectation is as the demand expands, the need for bandwidth is going to become more acute. So that's uh, we're hoping to get that deployed prior to the, when the need arrives.
0: Have you had to do anything to keep virtual hearing communication secure from hackers, malware, and ransomware?
5: There have been concerns expressed, and, and we're taking the, the precautions that industry is recommending in terms of requiring participants to register and using IDs and enabling waiting rooms and things of that nature.
0: Rick, are there any court rules, Pennsylvania state laws, or constitutional provisions that restrict virtual hearings?
1: Thank you, Pete. That's a great question. Yes, and the short answer is yes, there are rules that are set forth by the Supreme Court that prohibits the use of advanced communication technology for certain proceedings. So that's where there are state statutes as well. But both the court and our state legislature are looking into the relaxation of these in-person requirements. And in fact, the Supreme Court already has. This could be one benefit or means that the possibility of adding uh, of additional court proceedings produced remotely that we could use to enhance the efficiency of court operations as we move forward. And that's one thing I'm hopeful we'll learn from uh, having to be forced to close our operations to the public and do these proceedings remotely is that we learn how effective they can be and how efficient we can be.
0: Mike, do you know how difficult or easy it is for litigants to log into a virtual hearing in your court?
3: At this point, Peter, we have not extended the ability for self-represented litigants or for that matter others from outside uh, the immediate justice system to log into virtual hearings. I suspect that will come about in family law where more than 80% of our litigants are self-represented. But at this point, where we have uh, provided access is they basically bring their documents to the front door, we intercept them, the judges make a determination, and they can pick up their papers at a prearranged time and appointment. So as we get more into the video hearings, it's going to require, of course, that they have the, the software and applications like Microsoft Teams to log into our now court standard, but we've not gotten there yet.
0: Zanel, what does your court do about litigants who can only access a hearing by phone? Doesn't that put them at a disadvantage with litigants using audio video conferencing?
2: Picking up on what Mike said, we really are not rolling it out yet for the self represented. It's not in our domestic relations area. Mm-hmm. So mostly everyone, there's been an attorney involved, or you're at the detention facilities, and they have the polycom system, or there's an agency involved. So we really haven't run into that issue yet. And if there is usually a telephonic, both sides are appearing telephonic. I know that our chief judge hears a lot of things that way. So we haven't run into it yet, and I think once we get to the self-represented, you probably will see that one party has the video access and the other one has the telephonic. And we'll see how it actually works out.
0: How does your court create a record of the hearing? And what happens when you need an interpreter? Liz?
4: We are still creating the record of the hearing using our audio system. We have an electronic recording system. We have a backup for that, which is uh, most of our virtual hearing systems also have an opportunity to do the recording to a cloud that can then be downloaded to our electronic recording system. So there's there's a recommendation that we continue to have someone in the courtroom whose job it is to record the hearing. But if we can't do that, then to use those virtual clouds to store the audio until it can be downloaded. When interpreters are needed right now, they are dialing in and time is added to the proceeding so that asynchronous interpretation can happen, where normally they would be talking almost at the same time. You have to build time into those hearings so that everyone can hear each other and so that the party needing the interpreter can hear the interpreter.
0: Mark?
5: As Liz mentioned, the, the product that we are using does have a recording feature in it, so that's the primary means by which a record is made. But our reporters do dial in from time to time to make the record also more as a backup than anything else. She also mentioned our interpreters join the meeting as any other participant would. But again, uh, the note about doing interpretations consecutively as opposed to simultaneously does add some uh, time to the proceeding.
1: Rick? Well, doing very similar to what Liz and Mark have said, so we have many jurisdictions that are following their lead. I will say that in some jurisdictions, particularly uh, Philadelphia, a third-party vendor captures the record, stores it on a server, and then provides a passcode to the court to download the recording as an audio file. But in many of the jurisdictions that we have, the court reporter participates remotely and captures the as if uh, he or she was in the courtroom. How about if you need an interpreter? Uh, when it comes to interpreters, We are following what Liz and Mark have both said. There is that delay. So you are looking at simultaneous transliteration. You're looking at consecutive communications. So there is that delay, but it is working.
0: Mike, I recently read that Sacramento Superior Court is now live streaming criminal hearings on YouTube. How does the public access virtual hearings in San Diego?
3: Well, it's sad to say at this point they're not because we are in the uh, experimental early stages of the entire remote hearing technology and services. And so I suspect that's something we'll ease into down the road and probably learn from courts like Sacramento who are leading the way. But here in San Diego, we're still in our infancy and we haven't gone there yet.
0: Let me ask you to gaze into your crystal ball. Do you think this might be the start of real cultural change in the courts? will it foster truly extensive use of virtual hearings? For example, instead of judges asking, is there some reason why this hearing has to be done by teleconferencing? Will they start asking, is there a reason why we're conducting this hearing face-to-face? Zanelle?
2: I would say that's definitely the case. Our judges are very enthusiastic about doing the virtual hearings. And it was part of our strategic plan to pilot this in our civil division for 2020. And circumstances have just like blown it out of the water of where we even thought we would have been by this point. So I definitely see our judges buying into it. Our Supreme Court is very supportive of it. So I think this will probably be the wave of the future.
0: Mike?
3: Well, likewise, I think this has really opened the floodgates. It could have taken another generation for this technology to penetrate into the system. But the combination of uh, turnover on the bench with a lot of uh, fresh minds coming in, along with proving the efficacy of of these systems and programs, I think is going to lead to significant change and penetration into the court marketplace when it comes to technology. So I think there will be lasting effects as we all come to grips with, even beyond just the immediate pandemic, the idea that people may be more comfortable doing it from home or doing it online or attending a meeting via video, and that applies to employees as well as to, as the public. Liz?
4: I completely agree with what Zanel and Mike have said. I think it is going to be a bit of a sea change, but when I think about how it might apply on the ground, I think we'll be a lot more open to virtual hearings. But what's interesting to me is that I think some of the things we're doing virtually now out of necessity would go back to being in person and other things, for instance, a lot of those domestic relations things and or protective orders may end up being the things that we do virtually. So like in Lane County is enormous. Our county is 4,700 square miles and we have population centers at the farthest outreaches Um, coast and the Cascades, if you know where we're at. And so the issue then becomes that some of those protective orders and other things that we've wanted to conduct via a distance or remote proceeding, we haven't been able to that I think we'll be able to and people will be more willing for it. Whereas some of the urgent things we've been doing via video or virtual proceedings are sentencing and arraignments. And those things may go back to the way they were before because we had systems in place to conduct them safely in person. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out.
0: So let me go around the panel asking our final question. What was the major issue for you this week?
1: Rick? Well, Pete, I think communication is always an issue and in, in communicating with the court administrators or judges and in troubleshooting those operational issues. So that's always something we'll continue to address. But I think that's always an issue anyway, even in times of normal operation. I would say that the what we've started uh, this past uh, week and what I continue to plant the seeds for is what Zanel, Mike, and Liz have just said, and that's to try to orient and familiarize and educate all of our uh, court stakeholders and all of our participants, including the judges, uh, regarding the, the suitability and the efficiency of using remote proceedings and have this. can uh, it's not just a wave of the future. It's actually here and to get them comfortable with doing this. And certainly th- this issue, although it's certainly not under my control, but we're hopeful that uh, our Supreme Court and, and our general state legislature will take a look at this in the coming weeks and months as far as uh, relaxing some of those requirements for in-person proceedings. So Nell? Now-
2: So this week, I think I'm going to go with, like Rick said, is communication. Communication to the extent where our initial state of emergency expires tonight at midnight, but the governor has extended it. Our county executive has extended it. But our Supreme Court is also saying, yes, it's extended, but let's see if we can expand the services. So having those conversations with people the unions, the staff, so they understand what that expansion of services looks like and what roles they'll be playing and to make sure that we're addressing the safety.
3: Mike? Well, much like the prior comments, this is getting longer and deeper than I think we originally expected. We're currently closed through April 30th, but we're already starting to have conversations about what happens if we get into the middle to the end of May, they're telling us we'll hit our peak sometime here in the next week or two. And then thereafter, it'll be interesting to see how guided by the governor and our local public health officials, we begin to have a conversation about reopening. And so internally, we're starting to look at continuing to expand our technology services and offerings at the same time as we look at how might we begin to reopen in what could be a very limited capacity with social distancing and other things still in place. So. Uh, a changing landscape for us, and it's going to be longer and deeper than we'd originally anticipated. Liz?
4: Like everyone has said, um, we see this going longer than initially anticipated. Our our first Chief Justice restricted operations order expired at the end of March, and now this current one goes at least through the end of May. And so for me, the challenge this week and, and what I'm finally, I think, getting to turn my attention to is how – and What does it mean to be an open court in this environment, and how do we get people involved in the court proceedings when they're virtual? It's going to be a big challenge. We had last week our first high-profile proceeding and had to figure out a way to um, have the media uh, participate appropriately in that proceeding. So moving forward, I think that is going to be the question of the week for me, sort of thinking that through.
0: Mark?
5: Well, in in keeping with the theme, uh, our Supreme Court extended the emergency operations of the Florida state court system through the end of May. So we spent the majority of the past week trying to get everybody to at least some minimal level of familiarity with the uh, uh, technologies that we're using. And uh, so that's what we focused on the last week or so.
0: Once again, I want to thank Mike. Liz, Mark, Zanel, and Rick today for sharing what their courts are doing to combat the coronavirus crisis. I also again want to thank all of you court professionals out there listening to this podcast and who continue to go to work every day to keep the courts running. You are all heroes. I want to let you know that the April 7, 2020 Joint Technology Conference Quick Response Bulletin on Strategic Issues to Consider When Starting Virtual Hearings is posted on the podcast landing page under Additional Resources. Lastly, I want to give a shout-out to Erin Carr at the National Center for State Courts for spending a lot of her time maintaining our podcast landing page on the NACUM website. Thanks, Erin, for everything that you are doing in these difficult times. Join us next Thursday, April 23rd, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at cla podcast that's all one word, at nacumnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is CLA Podcast, that's all one word, at nacobnet.org. I'm Pete Keeper. And on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.